when I came to Canada. I realized that, and this has been said about the Canadian immigration system, that it's very just, but it's not very fair. I'm Jade Pichette, they, them. And I'm Erin Davis. May use the pronouns she and her. Welcome to Uncovering Belonging, a podcast that explores the professional and personal stories of unique voices of what it means to belong and the journey to finding our authentic self. So I'm really excited, Aaron, today to be talking to Deepak Kashyap. I've met him quite a few times. I know you haven't yet. So welcome, Deepak. Thank you very much. It means a lot to me. Deepak Kashyap, he, him, is a member of the Ontario Association of Mental Health Practitioners and the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. He provides emotional and mental health services in person as well as online for over 10 years. He holds a master's degree in the psychology of education from the University of Bristol, UK, has been formally trained in advanced programs in REBT and CBT from the Albert Ellis Institute in New York, and attended the MBCT summer school program at the Oxford Mindfulness Center at the University of Oxford Deepak's experience lies in developing and delivering programs for organizational mental health initiatives, anti-racism and anti-oppression frameworks, diversity and inclusion training, and LGBTQ2S plus leadership and rights activism. He has developed and delivered programs like employee emotional first aid, productivity and mental health during the pandemic, working from home, the new normal, unconscious bias, safe and respectful work environment, psychological safety at work, effective versus performative allyship, making workplaces more welcoming of the queer employees beyond just the Pride Month, emotional skills for feminism, distinctions between social justice warriors and workers, squaring up meritocracy and privilege myths, he has conducted workshops in India, Dubai, the United States, the UK, Europe, and Canada. He is a published columnist. He has appeared on various national and international news channels, talk shows. And uh, this is something that I am learning also, is that Deepak is India's first openly gay television co-host. Deepak, happy to have you as a guest on our podcast. I don't know if this is true for you, but I always sit in a little bit of discomfort as someone else reads my bio and <laughs> feel like, wow, that's really a lot of things. We don't need to spend time on myself, but I'm here to give gratitude for all of the amazing work that you've done. Uh, exactly the same. Exactly the same. I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to apologize to Jade later and tell them that Listen, next time I'll send you an abbreviated one. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much. For I, I just think all of those pieces of yourself are important. And as somebody with a background in social work who's working in this space, I know how often those of us who are doing that kind of social work or psychology counseling support often are focused so much on others that it's hard sometimes to focus on ourselves. But we're all about you today. And I think that every piece of that is important. <laughs> oh, that gives me such an ego boost. <laughs> we all need those ego boosts once in a while. I think especially yeah. those of us who do community work, we deserve it once in a while. So Aaron, do you want to get to know Deepak a bit more in terms of beyond the bio? Absolutely. And I know that our listeners will want to as well. So how did you get to this work? How did you end up in the diversity and inclusion space? I mean, I chose psychology because I absolutely love psychology. And at the time, we're talking 15, 20 years ago, when diversity and inclusion wasn't the hot topic. 
as the history of topics goes, it's literally five minutes old. It's still hot. Everyone wants a piece of it. So I was born in India. My father's born in India, but his father was born in Pakistan. During the partition of the country, his father had moved here. I was raised in India as the English-speaking elite of the country, as the upper caste, upper class. But we were still refugees from Pakistan. It was a very interesting experience. We were upper caste, but economically poor because we were refugees. When I was growing up, I think because of who we were, our education and things like that, we quickly rose through the, uh, the social ranks. We were already the upper caste. And I know it's a horrible thing to even use that word upper caste and lower caste. But right now I'm talking about what is, not what I would like it to be. So that's important as a context to remember. So it was easier for us to sort of, you know, get education and get the money and get the connections and whatnot and rise up to the level of truly calling ourselves middle-class Indians. So while I was in India and before I was sent to England to study and my parents then could afford to send me to England to study, I had so much privilege. The moment I landed in England, I was just another brown immigrant. Hi everyone, this is Jade and I'm recording this after the fact to provide listeners with a content note. Deepak is going to share a story which includes a reference to human trafficking and sex trafficking. So if you need to, you may want to press the skip forward button to go about a minute or two forward. So of course I went through the sophomore year of angry college student who's angry at everything. And everything is racist and everyone's homophobic and everyone's dysphobic. And then I had a teacher from Ghana. She had worked on salvaging, saving, literally saving girls from human trafficking. And I was this angry, sophomore person. So once I kind of had it out with my teacher and I said, why are you not angry? You talk about injustice with this, um, the word that I used, Jade and Erin, was academic sterility. And I was so proud of my vocabulary <laughs> because I was learning this vocabulary to name and shame. And then I realized quickly that I'm yelling at a black woman in a class and like, oh my God, you need to like, you know, calm the fuck down a little, blah, blah, blah. And then I go up to her and she says, Deepak, the only difference between you and I at this moment is you look at inequalities and discrimination as a result of human evilness. I look at them as a result of human weakness. Wow. And I still remember it. That was the start of the change. That a woman who was sex trafficked herself, who saved herself into becoming literally the savior for others, for many, many others, wasn't angry. And I was this little privileged boy from India, and I was carrying this anger for everyone around me, thinking that that's what gives me identity and that's what gives me validation. So that sort of made me realize that I need to make the shift from being a warrior to a worker. And she kept educating me about this. And she would say, you have to realize that the moment you are in the warrior mentality, you have to choose sides and you have to look at the other side as a monolith to be attacked, not to be understood. The moment we are in war mentality, the other is a monolith tribe and all have to be attacked, women, children, old alike. But a worker has to passionately work with everybody. A worker doesn't have to choose sides. It has to be on the side of values and not identities. If you're applying justice, it applies to everyone. That particular teacher of mine really changed my attitudes towards it. Wow. 
And then the second step came in my journey when I came to Canada. And this has been said about the Canadian immigration system that it's very just, but it's not very fair. Why is it just? Because you can't bribe yourself into Canada. You have to fulfill some of the things. And if you fulfill regardless of where you are from, you will make it to Canada. So it's just that way. But Canada goes around the world collecting the cream of the crop. We ask for master's degree. We ask for a certain level of English proficiency. We ask for a certain amount in your bank. We ask for this, that and the other. So we are going around not just picking up anyone other than the refugee things that we have going on, which I applaud with all of my heart. We, we're not just inviting anyone, we're inviting the cream of the crop. And then the moment they land in Canada, we're like, oops, sorry, you can only work at Tim Hortons. And there's nothing wrong with working at Tim Hortons, but that's not what these people have proved their skills for. So that's what happened to me. Yes, there are unions and yes, there are quality assurance, things that every country needs to have. But these quality assurances could quickly turn into entry barriers for people who are very qualified but are not allowed to work. I've sat in one too many Ubers being driven by doctors from Iran, from Syria, from India. So that just made me realize that, yes, you've let me in and I'm grateful, but you've taken my professional identity away from me. And there is no recourse to it. And no one tells you this when you're immigrating to Canada. And that's what got me like, hey, I need to do something. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I've been doing diversity and inclusion work in India. I'm going to continue. So I set up my own organization called Lotus Mindfulness Center, where we work on wellness, we work on psychological safety at workplaces, and we work on diversity and inclusion and belongingness. Sorry, that was a long story, but I kind of needed to get through it for you to understand why I'm so passionate about wellness and diversity. There's no need to apologize. I'm taking copious amounts of notes because I love all of these different pieces that you're sharing with us. And yes, DNI is five minutes old and the work that people have been doing for years definitely constitutes the work that we do now in this space. It's just been sort of categorized in a way to allow organizations to check a box to say that we are doing these things to make people feel included at work. But do they? Do they truly find and feel that sense of belonging? And I wonder now at this stage in your career, why does this work make you feel that sense of belonging? Because belongingness is a two-way street. You can find belonging from outside, but a sense of belonging can also be generated from within. Like, for example, I look the way I do. I've got a weird accent. I switch accents every now and then when I go to India or here. I've lived in four different countries. There are times when I ask, where do I belong? I know where I was born. I speak four languages, but where do I belong? I had to start belonging to me first. Belongingness is another name for attachment plus connection. I'm connected to you, but I also feel care. So if I start feeling the connection with myself and give up this idea that I have to prove myself to somebody, this is who I am in my unique colors. Absolutely. And I think there's this fascinating component to the work that we do in terms of our own unique identities and this need to fit in, that I need to be like others, to feel a sense of belonging. But as you unpack it, it is absolutely not that. It's our unique sense of how do we have this attachment to something, but also make that connection knowing that we can exist within differences and celebrate those differences. So I'll, I'll uh, turn it over to Jade to take us a little bit down that pathway. 
This discussion is making me think a lot about chosen family. And I think this is something that a lot of workplaces struggle with understanding is that for equity deserving groups, those people who we build attachment and connection and care with may not be who we are biologically or legally related to in the in the same ways. And that has a big impact on our wellness at work. That has a big impact on how we see ourselves and in the supports that we need. So Deepak, what are some of the barriers that you see in terms of building that wellness? I think you said something really important about chosen family. The word choice means that you have to act to choose. Right. That choice has to be made for belonging, to venture out and take the dangerous risks of vulnerability. Yes. And safety is not guaranteed. Neither is hurt guaranteed, nor is safety guaranteed. And that's how I'm going to sort of come to the barriers. You will face discomfort on a day-to-day basis when you go out. There will be people who probably don't understand pronouns. There are people who do not understand or believe in intersectionality. There are people who think that you are probably overstating the harm and hurt that's been done to you. Are you being dramatic? All of these are discomforting, distressing things, but they are not dangerous. The moment we conflate danger and discomfort, then we're ensuring safety only for ourselves. So while it is super important to make safe spaces, it's also super important to make brave spaces. We need to have both. A lot of the times people dismiss the safety of it. And I don't stand behind that idea. I'm not coming here with a but. I'm coming here with an and. Safe and brave. Because if we're going to choose to be leaders, we will have to expect these bumps to come our way. And they can get very tiring. Yeah, I hear a lot about self-accommodation of creating those spaces for yourself, especially when we're in just spaces of discomfort. And that discomfort can come from a number of different reasons. But if we're in that space of discomfort, identifying where is this discomfort coming from? Yeah. Is it because there's a rooted to historical harm or is it my uncomfortability with getting to know something new, getting yeah. to increase? engage with a new thought and getting to engage with something that is different for yourself. And and so making those accommodations for yourself, making that space for yourself, I think is a big piece of this discussion. Now, when we're talking about workplaces, if I'm just another employee, my job is not to educate you. Unless that's my job description. Unless my job description is to be a learning and development person for diversity and inclusion programs. Otherwise, my job is not here to make you comfortable with who I am. Your job, on the other hand, is to not stand in the way of inclusion. Don't make the environment such that I feel like I don't belong there. Does that make sense? Definitely does. Like, I don't need you to understand my experience as an autistic person, for instance. But Mm -hmm. I do need you to respect that I'm going to communicate differently. I'm going to engage slightly differently. And I might not pick up on social cues. And it's recognizing these intersections with each other and the different ways that we can make sure that we're not causing harm as we go forward and not intentionally making other people feel like they don't belong in a space through those actions. Like there are certain things that I just don't understand. 
There are certain political beliefs I don't understand. There are certain (laughs) experiences of identity I just don't understand, but that doesn't mean I'm going to make them not feel like they belong. So what has worked well to make people feel like they belong through wellness programs or otherwise? Or what are those small moments that have made you feel like you belong? So I think the moment I let go of the insistence on, I will make progress only when I guilt and shame you. I don't insist on that just because I've gone through something that you have to change your life for me. But I also make sure that reasonable accommodations are made for things that I cannot change and things that actually make the work environment unsafe. The other unrelated thing that sort of has worked for me is I do not go the route of making financial arguments about the validity of diversity, inclusion and belongings work. I love money. I love people when they make money fair and square. It's amazing. But we are here not to make money over other people's sufferings. You're not righting the wrong so that you can earn more money. If it's a happy consequence, amazing. I totally agree. Right? So if I'm presenting to your company, you'd probably find one slide that talks about this. You'd find other slide that makes a point of socio-ethical legal arguments. I take you through the journey of how we used to look at workers. We have improved a lot, but we cannot say now we've come to the place where there's no more evolution required in terms of bettering workers' conditions, in terms of bettering inclusion. It's like saying to women, you know, you've got the right to vote. You can own property now. What else do you need? There never comes a time where you have too many rights. Rights is not a concept that can be applied in excess. Rights is a concept that's not given. Rights are never given. You just move out of the way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of progress that we've made, but a lot more that can be. And I see how some of these workplace wellness initiatives that we've learned over recent time over, you know, the pushing of the moral case for diversity, equity, inclusion are getting a bit of pushback, too. But I do see the progress still. And so do you have any advice for engaging employers or for others within their organizations? Profit becomes more and more and more meaningful only when there are three other P's that come before it. People, purpose, and planet. Their relationship to each other is very interdependent and circular in nature. If you have more profit, you have more money, you will invest it in your people. You will try to invest it in more purposeful ways. Otherwise, you're just going to be looked at as a heartless organization, an organization where people work only because they're desperate, And the moment they upskill themselves and they better themselves, the first thing they want to do is leave. And people have woken up to the three M's, which is money, manager and meaning. Money, we were always aware of money, but people have woken up now. They can compare how much the same positions being paid in other companies of similar size. It's no longer a secret. Managers, people know, people don't quit their jobs, they quit their managers because they don't feel included, they don't feel they belong there, they feel humiliated or they feel it's psychologically unsafe and meaningful connection to the work. Not every work is evidently meaningful in and of itself. 
the most rewarding and meaningful things is make it relational. Make it mm. relational. Make make it attached to real meanings, real life, real people. Because nothing in this world is important if it is not affecting real people's lives, either in the long term or the short term, immediately or in a bit of time. And if you're able to get these three M's, money, a good manager, and meaning, you'd probably be able to hold on to people a little longer and make them feel dignity in the process. That concept of meaning is so deeply connected for this idea of belonging. If you don't have meaning, you're not going to feel like you belong. If you don't have purpose, you're not going to feel like you belong. If you're not compensated properly, you're not going to feel like you belong. If your manager micromanages or just doesn't manage at all also where you're just like left hanging and and left in the wind you're not going to feel like you belong so i appreciate like all of these different aspects of recognizing the changing nature of work where it's actually caught up to our humanness or we hope that it is <laughs> at least yeah and the good news about meaning jade is that it has always created there's no inherent meaning in anything yeah. as i see it yeah Listen, your job, your money is not going to make me immortal. Neither will it make you immortal. Yes, your funeral procession might be slightly bigger than mine. More people might attend it, but it won't bring you back to life. All that we're asking for is before we die, we suffer less and we live with dignity. And that's all that we're asking. I'm so grateful for that share. So let's look towards the future. Aaron. Where are we going from here to build that future? Yeah, thanks, Jade. I think this is sort of our opportunity to paint a picture. I use the term utopia. I don't know if we will ever get there as a human species because uh, you said it earlier, Deepak, evolution is still required. But can you create and paint a picture for us? What does that utopia look like? So I think there are functional utopias and dysfunctional utopias. The idea of utopia where everyone is, quote unquote, woke, no one's hurt. I'm not sure we'll get to that point because in this story is a very linear and one-dimensional story where there's only one oppressor, one victim, one hero. Most of the Eastern stories will confuse you because the hero sometimes acts as a villain. Sometimes the villain is actually the victim. Sometimes the victim is the oppressor. You are a dynamic human being. You're going to play all the roles. So part of utopia would be giving yourself more dimensions and others more dimensions than of meeting the eye. I also love this one line from Buddha. He says, do you want the wire to be so tight that it breaks? Or do you want it to be so loose that it can't produce music? It has to be somewhere in that golden meat that it's tight enough and loose enough that it produces the music of poetry of life. So a functional utopia is wherever there's suffering, you shall have the coping mechanism to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's very interesting exercise to talk about utopia, right? (laughs) No, keep going. Keep going. I like this picture that you're painting for us. Yeah. So I think accountability, vulnerability, and safety, they're not mutually exclusive of each other. They, in fact, are complementary of each other. You still have the accountability for your behavior to not traumatize others. The moment you ask for unreasonable things of others to accommodate you, that is no longer trauma, that's entitlement. There's trauma entitlement Mm -hmm. as well. 
there's privilege entitlement, there's trauma entitlement. Listen, you could come from all sorts of identities and all sorts of lived experiences, but an explanation and an excuse are two different things. Yeah. If we say no to everything just makes us uncomfortable, our yeses also become meaningless. So we need to know our no's so that our yeses are more meaningful. Absolutely. Thank you so much for answering our questions, but we have a few rapid fire questions to close us out. Jade's going to start us off. We want the first thing that comes to mind. So question one, if you could recommend one book, what would it be? Homo Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And not only because he's gay, it's an amazing book. Amazing. I now have another book to add to my list. My question is, what brings you joy? Oh my God, I'm such a nerd. Learning new things about philosophy, psychology, politics, history, sexuality. No matter how sad I am, if I do that, I'm just put in a different zone altogether. And I do enjoy a good stand-up comedy routine. I love it. Amazing. What's your theme song for today? Go easy on me by Adele. <laughs> Yes. I'm over here loving all of these answers. Oh, Adele. Who is someone that inspires you and how you create belonging and doesn't get enough credit? There's a gay prince from India. His name is Manvendra Singh Gohil. He came out as probably amongst the first royalty in the world to openly come out and declare that he's gay. And he's been trying. He was thrown out of the palace, has just the title and no money. He's still trying and trying and trying to create an inclusive society. That's just like one of my personal heroes. And I also happen to know him personally. Amazing. And our final question is, what is one call to action you'd like from our listeners? Introspection is where we start. So I would like all of us to be as honestly introspective and honestly accepting of ourselves as we can. And don't get too scared. You'll be fine. Yeah, sit in the discomfort once in a while. Yeah. I am so grateful for everything that you've shared today. And thank you for giving us the gift of your time today. Thank you for having me. It was an amazing experience. Aaron, what do you think? I am still processing all of the amazing pieces that Deepak shared with us. What stood out for you? You know, one of the things that I really saw through the conversation today with Deepak was just how much he brought vulnerability to the discussion of being a newcomer in Canada and what that was like for employment. I totally agree. I know from my personal experience, I meet many people who have come to Canada who have such a high education, yet they face barriers in terms of access to jobs and jobs that would be meaningful to them based on their education, what they're passionate about. Why does this matter? We know through statistics that immigrants and refugees comprise 21.9% of the Canadian population, and this number continues to rise. This is part of the work that we have to do to unpack our own privileges and understand the work that still needs to be done to allow everyone to achieve their highest potential. Yeah, I, I see that questioning happening a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll give our listeners lots to think about as well. And I look forward to continuing these conversations. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope that you enjoyed, learned, and uncovered deeper belonging with us and our guest, Deepak Kashyap. We'd encourage you to connect with us on LinkedIn and let us know what part of today's episode resonated most with you. We also would like to thank and share a brief message from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Shaw Communications. They connect millions of Canadians every day to brighter technology solutions, and they're proud to celebrate the rainbow of identities on their teams that make that possible. The richness of diversity among their staff and communities is what makes them uniquely Shaw. It impacts everything they do. Shaw is a place where everyone can bring their whole selves to work and feel a sense of belonging. To learn more about Shaw, visit shaw.ca. That's S-H-A-W dot C-A. Also, thanks to our production team, including our editor, Sean Ahmed, our communications coordinator, Luis Augusto Noble, and our production support, Connor Pion. And of course, most of all, we'd like to thank you for joining us on our first episode. This has been a bit of a dream for Aaron and I, and so we're so grateful for the support for more information about today's guests, links referenced, and a transcript, check out our show notes, which are available on the Pride at Work Canada website. You can also subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to you joining us in the future and finding moments where we can uncover belonging.